0: Again, thanks for listening, and may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God our Father and of Jesus our Lord. Good morning, Saints. This is a delight for me to look out on the congregation, and there's some faces here that haven't been here for a while. It gives me great pleasure. Welcome back, and welcome to those that always come. You're actually brave because you came here last week, most of you, and for some odd reason you returned, and I hope it'll be a blessing to you, and for what I've prepared for us this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Blessed Father, uh, I ask most humbly that you would assist me, because you know uh, the trembling within me, that I approach a subject that could really be misconstrued. And uh, that would be such a horrible thing if I make air of your word. My intention is to deliver to the people something that would actually uh, bolster their confidence and their love in you in a time of deep distress. And so if you would help me, if you'd work that out through my lips, we would praise you all together. Your people are precious. And we don't want to waste time, nor do we want uh, our hearts to be diverted into something that's erroneous. So God, I do ask most humbly, would you attend to the preaching of the word with all power, with all clarity. I ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name, amen. Uh, Last week, for those of you that were not here, I uh, preached a sermon with the idea in mind of actually getting rid of this business of fretting over trouble, anxiety, because all of us are feeling a bit of that with all of the things that have transpired in our nation. And consequently, I thought it would be a good thing, a good subject for us to engage in How can we have our attention diverted from such trouble? So I entered into it by using five touchstones. And hopefully those of you that attended last week's service can readily recall those touchstones. But just in case you can't, I'm just going to read them off, but I'm not going to go back over them. However, I will tell you that one of the touchstones or one of the bullet points that I delivered to you last week I want to expand on because I think it's necessary. But yeah, as you recall last week, the first one was trust in the Lord. If we truly grapple with that, then you can understand how this can be a, a diversionary thing to trust in the Lord. The second one was take delight in the Lord. And the third one was commit your way to the Lord <clears throat> with that fuller explanation from the, the original language in which it says, roll your cares over onto the Lord. So it's not just a point of committing yourself, but it's actually rolling your problems onto the Lord. But then the fourth one is be still before the Lord. And even as Cliff got up here this morning, he expressed what many of us feel right now. Should we be yelling, screaming? Should we be taking up a gun? Should we be doing something actively against our aggressor? But this fourth one says, shh, be quiet. Trust in the Lord. (laughs) Then the last one is, refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Now, any one of these I could have taken and I could have expounded on them because you could really flesh it out and it would be most helpful for us. But it's actually the second one that I gave to you last week, Take Delight in the Lord, that I want to zero in on. And uh, in particular, I want to give the heading of the sermon because the focus is going to be on intimacy, that word intimacy as it relates to delight in the Lord. Now, when I thought about this for a second, and actually, as I worked through the sermon, I knew for sure and for certain, this could be trouble. This subject could be trouble. We could get be sidetracked so easily in our mind as I unravel this. And so in my, my mind's eye, this is how I view it. It's like I put on a billboard, delight in the Lord, and I put it way down uh, through a field, And I stick it up in my vision so that that's my target. I'm going to walk towards that target. But guess what I'm walking through? I'm walking through a minefield. And either I'll step on a mine or you're going to step on a mine. So be careful. Because for sure, as I walk through this, all of the scriptures that I'm going to unravel here, there's going to be a temptation to step somewhere that you don't need to be in this lecture. So with that in mind, I want us to focus in on something that will start us off in the direction I I want us to go by turning to Jeremiah 31. And Jeremiah 31 is probably a very familiar passage to us because Kit always goes there. Because it happens to be that prophetic utterance of something that was going to come in the future concerning New Covenant. And, you know, as I read through this new covenant, the rendition of this, I got to thinking to myself, Jeremiah, what were you thinking? Man, God was giving you a picture in the future that you're not participating in right now. and You must have been, uh, you must have been saying to yourself, I'm shortchanged because this looks really inviting to me. We live in the new covenant, don't we? We are new creation. We are part there. We are participants in what I'm going to read right now. Oftentimes we devalue it. We take it for granted. We don't understand the enjoyment of what has been given to us. But I want to read this and I'm not going to read the entire thing. But that which is pertinent to unraveling this whole idea of intimacy. Starting in verse 31 I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. I want to back up for a second. To actually put in bold lettering and explanation, he says he wants everyone to know the Lord. To know the Lord. So we have to do a little bit of homework right here because you can misconstrue just the language itself and be sidetracked very easily. Knowing the Lord, well, the original or the Hebrew rendition of know the Lord, it's very much like when you go to the dictionary and you want to discover what the full meaning of a particular word is and you have various renditions or descriptors of that word that you've actually put in front of you, isn't it? And you have to kind of drill down. You have to look inside of that for the one that's most applicable. And it doesn't mean that some of them are totally irrelevant, but they have some kind of connector to the original word. Same thing with the Hebrew rendition. So I want us to be very careful of how we hear this in our ears, because it's going to go forward into the latter or the the next stage in our our message today. Well, the Hebrew rendition of of the the, the term "no" is is and I'm going to probably destroy the interpretation or the, the, uh, the way it's said is yada, Y-A-D-A, in Hebrew, to know, yada. And the various interpretations of those things that we can kind of capture from that word, yada, is the end of something and the beginning of something. The end of something and the beginnings of something. The end of an awful loneliness. Or the beginning of, and I want you to hear this very carefully, the beginning of discovery of relationship with God. Okay, the next one is a knowledge that continually grows out of a personal encounter. The uh, Puritans, they have a term for this, it's experimental. Experimental. You've entered into a relationship that's experimental. Every time I used to read that from my old boys, and I got a lot of them down in my study, I said, come on, guys, it's experiential. But no, that was their terminology. It was experimental. It was an engagement in something that far surpasses just common knowledge. And we need to actually wrestle with what, how that's actually turning our head. You know, uh, for you parents... Uh, when you're little kids, they're growing up, okay? And you know how distracted they are in a lot of things. And they're sitting there in their high chair, etc., and their, their heads are going all... But you, every once in a while, you do have to grab their heads and say, steady there, steady. I want you to focus, because I'm going to tell you something. I want you to focus. See, that's what I'm doing right now with giving you a definition. I want you to focus. Because there's going to be a temptation. Whoops, I've got I to gotta look over there. No, I don't want you to do that. Okay? Uh, those, of the, those of you uh, that are parents, I know exactly what you're, you're thinking about right now. <clears throat> get this, before I move on to actually, when I'm drilling down through the definition, when I'm going to gonna get to the one that I'm going to actually be capitalizing on here, I want to say before we get there, this never, never means knowing about. there's many in the church know about Jesus, okay? You know, Satan knows more about Jesus than all of us. Knowledge-wise, experientially, none. He does not know. But this never, never means knowing about, okay? Now, a lot of times in the Old Testament, Uh, translation of this word yada it refers to the marriage act itself so it's not just knowing the thoughts and emotions of the other but description of the most intimate of union between husband and wife man that's my target that's my target when I put up on the top here the title of this message is intimacy my target is that which is reserved singularly, for a relationship that cannot be transgressed by outsiders. It is singular in devotion. And I'm going to develop that thought throughout this. Well, in the New Testament, we have a similar thought. It's a a word in the Greek that's fairly close to yada, And it's pronounced, and I'm going to butcher this one, Genesco, Genesco, to know. And that comes from John chapter 17. I'm going to read this very briefly. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, that you know. You see the word? Okay, that's very, very closely connected to that wor- word in the Old Testament, to know, but the definition of it is steering us slightly askew of that which is in marital terms. But as I develop this, you're going to soon see that does not, it does not exclude that relationship in the marriage uh, union. So for the definition... You can uh, view it in, in these terms to know by experience. And once again, you're going back to the experimental. To grasp the full reality of something. And it's not a passing acquaintance. And now, it's, this is very, very important for us because we're going to go back to Genesis right after this. But this, uh, uh, this idea is not of merging, it's mixing. It's a mixing of two things. And so the equation would be this, and, and as I go back to the picture in Genesis, you're going to get the full impact of this. One plus one equals one. And you're sitting and saying, what? What are you saying? I'll explain that in Genesis. But one plus one equals one. So now in that equation, Now, yeah, I know the little kids are saying, oh, oh he flunked, he flunked math. I, can, I already know it. But no, I'm going to develop this for us. Because the idea of the one plus one equals one, it does not mean in any way, shape, or form in the first instance that the one is actually going to merge into the other so they're indistinguishable in as much as their identities have been melded to, to non-existence. And Stephen and Debbie are still Stephen Debbie, but there's Stephen Debbie one. Do you get the distinction? They're one. So now we're going to turn back to Genesis because I want to develop this from the very beginning. In fact, you know, much of the gospel, actually, the, the, the dart that God has shot from Genesis covers much of the gospel right here in the first couple of chapters. Now, before I do this, I want to also go back and remind us that there's many expressions that God has delivered to us that are really good descriptors of our union with God. And the way I envision this, it's like there's a series of threads or cables that originate with God himself. They pass through history, their target, their end game. Their culmination is in Jesus Christ. All those threads, they're all going towards Jesus Christ. As they uh, go through history itself, all these other things are warped inside, or they, they're related to it. Now, if you think for one second that you can grab all of them all together, that's impossible. You have to take one at a, one at a time to build the whole case. For the descriptors of Jesus Christ In God. The one that I happen to grab this morning to deliver to you folks happens to be that one called intimacy. And then in parentheses, union, in parentheses, husband, wife, or or marriage. You see where I'm going? See, I could have grabbed another one of the threads that happens to be son of okay because that theme is actually developed as well and there's other descriptors Uh, there's uh, family descriptors we um, Jesus Christ is said to be our brother our, our elder brother right there's all kinds of descriptors that we could have pulled that cable out and said we're gonna look at that strand from beginning all the way to the end I haven't done that I'm just centering in on marriage now, just for a second here, I want to show you there's, there is a comparison that actually destroys or at least it, it, it subdu- subdues the idea of intimacy that I'm not after. A relationship with your son, a relationship with your brother is not as intimate as a relationship with your wife, is it? They're different. But yet they do make up that composite relationship that God engages us with in Jesus Christ. All of those. But we're after this one. In particular, what it is that Adam and Eve have brought to us. Now, in the beginning, you guys know the story well. The Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is, was that place where the horizontal met the vertical. It was the sanctuary of God. It was reserved for that which was Adam, God. God, Man was supposed to have communion. He was supposed to be, uh, uh, God was his mate. God was his mate, okay? That's how Adam was created to begin with. But as you know, as, as Adam was created, all those other animals were, uh, were there for him to name. And he noticed something. I know he noticed something. There was a male-female female elephant, male-female giraffe, etc., right on down the line. And he must have been scratching his head and saying, Good night, Charlie Brown. Uh, where's, where's my mate? I, I don't have a mate. This is so different. Everybody else has a mate. I don't have a mate. Now, here's where it gets back into definition itself, because God noticed, he knew, even though they were communing together, but what was communing together? What was that bond? Because Adam's name is ground or earth, right? Well, ground or earth cannot have intimate relation with spirit. There's a disconnect. You, you, You can't put those two together not in the most intimate of relationship. So God created Adam, a a sensual being. He he operates on his senses. So in order for him to evaluate things, it has to be with that dynamic in mind. Sight, feel, taste, all all those things, the five senses. That's how he learns. That's how he associates with things. And when he is seeing all the animals, etc., that are there, and they have male, female. He is sensing something absent. And God is the creator, and he says, this is not good. And consequently, he brings him a mate. Notice how he brings him a mate. He puts him to sleep. Okay, okay. And do you know what sleep is? I don't know if you've ever cons- considered this, but when you go to sleep, that's probably the next thing. That's the closest thing you, you, we experience outside of death, or the next thing is death. Now, you probably don't think about that every night. Oh, good night, child. You know, you're going to die. No, what I'm saying is your senses are muted. You're not seeing, you're not tasting, you're not hearing. You're, it's, it's something that's very close to death, Now, that's going to carry through to my next section that I'm going to go to. But right now, I don't want to jump that fence yet. I want us to remind ourselves that in his sleep, God brought forth Eve out of the side of his, his rib. And when he did that, it was not a totally different person. It was of Adam. Now, in the first instance, if you're asking for definition from the Hebrew, as Adam was considering who he was in relation to all the animals, in the Hebrew, you, you would pronounce it ish. Ish. That's the Hebrew for man. Now, when God put him to sleep and took the rib out of the side of him, and then he awakened, and there right in front of him was woman, woman. He said, ish-ah. That's how you pronounce it. I don't know if his eyebrows went up, but I could just see him say, wowzer. Now, he didn't say wowzer. And apparently, Eve was not a mutant, or else the definition would have been changed. Ish-ugh. But it's not, it's ish-ah. Okay. But right there, now I want to zero in. I want us to get a hold of this because the union between Adam and Eve is going to be something that's going to describe something unbelievably beautiful in the future of the unraveling of our relationship in Jesus Christ. If you miss this, you're going to miss the next part. You won't, you won't get it. <clears throat> So consequently, with that intimacy that was given, because it was the first marriage, Adam and Eve was the first marriage, and notice what he says when Adam uh, views Eve, this, is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has taken out of man. She was taken out of man. It's not something distinct outside of Adam. It's part of him. Now I know in our culture that brings the hackles up in a lot of people. They don't, they don't like that kind of language when it talks about a man in relationship to a woman. They just don't like it. They would rather have it that the woman was so distinct there is nothing to be sh- shared there. But that's not true. That's not how creation came about. Well, what happened in the Garden of Eden was most tragic, and we all know the story, but you know something? When we're talking about marriage, we use the language of marriage, don't we? What is the most intimate thing that you can think about marriage? It's the marriage act, right? That is the most intimate. There's, there's nothing that actually transcends that, that which is physical in the human being. And I'll give you an example of that. If I uh, pat my wife on the head, that's not the most intimate thing. Okay? It's just not. The marriage act is actually the thing that is the most intimate. Consequently, that is going to be in the mind of Adam when he's considering relationship between himself and God. So that Adam and Eve, they're one but two. If they commune with God, now they can commune as one to God. But still, there's something missing in that, which we're going to have to develop. And it's marvelous what God brings us. Absolutely mind-blowing marvelous how he brings it back into which we can enter into a partnership, a union with God in a different plane altogether and absolutely mind-blowing rich. But then there was spiritual, but as well as physical adultery in the Garden of Eden. We know the story. Satan seduced Eve and it split. Now, when that split happened, it didn't just affect Eve, it affected Adam as well. Why? It's because they're one. They're not two, they're one. When she was seduced, Adam was seduced. And consequently, that's what we, uh, we refer to about the fall, Adam's fall. She did it, but he did it because they're all one. Well, since that time, and because from that sprang the divorce, the first divorce, that says, I will banish you. First exile, I'm, you're, you've been removed out of the Garden of Eden. There's no longer that, that intimacy that we did share. I am separating you from my presence. And ever since that time from the Garden of Eden, we have discovered over and over again that man can never find satisfaction outside that union. Now it's a puzzle to me that, we do just run around to and fro, everywhere we want to go, looking for something that's going to satisfy that ache inside of us, that deep soul ache inside of us. We got cars, we got, you know, uh, uh, golf games. Although that, that one's not quite so satisfactory. But you understand what I'm saying? There's lots of other things that you just fill in the gap trying to make up the difference there. Cliff is laughing because he's seen me play golf. I, so anyway. Okay, now here comes something. Now you remember what that man was to the woman. Okay. And you, And you remember, of course, that the woman came from the man. And they had union because they were common. They were physical. They were dirt. Okay? One substance. Incarnation comes. That ought to rock your boat. Because God desires to have intimacy with his people. Jesus Christ is the second Adam, isn't he? He's fully man. He's going to come into the garden as the new Adam for the new Eve. You ever consider it that way? For that relationship to actually come together in absolute intimacy. And remember, I told you at the beginning of this there's a temptation to step on a landmine here. I don't want you doing that. I want you to be thinking in, in terms of total intimacy. God says, I will come as man. That man can interface with me in the most intimate way. That blows my mind. So when Jesus Christ is hanging on the cross, you see something there. that he, uh, One of the centurions threw a spear, stuck him in the side, and out came what? Blood and water. Blood washing away the sin. Remember at the beginning I was telling you that the definition of yada was washing away or taking away loneliness. He was getting rid of that, that element, is taking away something. Blood is representative of washing away our sin. But water coming from his side represents life. You remember that Adam was put to sleep, which is the next thing too. It's close to death. What came from Adam's sleep? Eve. What comes from Christ's death? The church. The church. That's what came from this incident of the cross, the church. Water represents life. Christ died. And he brought forth uh, the church. Eve, or Eve came forth from the sleep of Adam. There's an unbelievable intimate tie between those two situations. And at this juncture, but before I get into that, to prove the point that God loves to do this to sharpen our understanding, because when Adam was considering all of this, and then as we progressed in history... God was perfecting that idea of marriage that we might know what he's speaking about. He uses these terms in Hosea. They're, they're actually all through the Old Testament. But I do want to read this for a second. Help us understand the relationship between God and and man. It says th- this is in chapter two. In, in the book of Hosea, it says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there, shall, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfastness of love and in mercy. And we're going to need those passages to develop the theme of intimacy through marriage as we progress in the New Testament. Because now we're ready for Ephesians 5. Now, this now last week, uh, I, I remember one of the comments that was given, I mean, Uh, Chris got up here and says, whoops, that that was like a spotlight. It was too bright. Now, this one is not going to be a spotlight altogether, but I would dare say that some of you in the congregation, you might have to tuck your feet up underneath your seat because I might be stepping on your toes here. Because every time we get into this thing called marriage from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, there's a hiccup. If we truly, if we correctly understand what he's actually unpacking here, there's always a hiccup in this. But it's actually very, very important for us to understand what God is developing. Why? Because the the, the fastest way for God to actually bring understanding to our minds that are of the flesh or of the earth is to give a visible representation. Of that which is spiritual. That's the fastest way he does that. Isn't it true? We understand priesthood by a visible representation. What was going on in the Old Testament as far as priests? That's what Kit has been developing in Hebrews as to the true identifier of the priesthood. While the same thing is happening through marriage, we need to understand fully what it is to be unionized or act, don't. Don't go off the, that other side because I don't like unions. But I'm, I'm talking about the, the total commitment and communion between ourselves and God. So he raises up marriage for us to understand relationship. And I'm going to read this for a second. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That was probably, you know, even as I read that. Now in this church we're saved. Pretty sure we're saved. In many churches, if I read that, that would have been a landmine. Somebody's leg would have come off right there. It's it's just bad. It's seriously bad. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ so also wives should submit in everything to your husbands. Now, husbands usually at that point, they're saying, yeah, this is good, I I like this reading. Well, you need to be quiet, because there's more to come. And actually, the pressure is on the husband, so just go with me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I just want to interject here. You husbands that are here, how's your sacrifice for your wife going? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of her water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast as to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hmm, That sounds like uh, Genesis 2, doesn't it? Back in Genesis 2, it says, let no man put this asunder. I don't want any interference. And Paul says in Romans, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And he lists all those things. Nothing can do this because I put it together. I hope you got this. I put this. I married you two together, so nothing is going to come between us. Okay, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I I wish married people would understand that concept. When they leave their mom and dad, they're not still married to their mom and dad. Leave. You're one person in your husband or wife. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. But back in verse 32, this is the one that I want to capitalize on here because we're we're dealing with things that actually transcend just the physical. If we just stay with the interpretation of the physical, we're not getting the full depth of what Paul is after, what Jesus Christ is after. Because in in verse 32, it says, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, husbands and wives. Husbands and wives. We're talking, about, we're talking about the most intimate of things. Now we have a new mathematical equation that started in the Garden of Eden. And you had 1 plus 1 equals 1. Guess what you have now? And they're of like substance. I want us to get this. 1 plus 1. Who knows what the the number of the church is? I don't know what the number of the church is. It's da-da-da-da, a billion, whatever. But listen to this. It's one plus that number equals one. You got it? I hope you understand this. One plus that number of the church is one. See, that was represented right at the very beginning. One plus two equals one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's one. We don't have three gods, we have one God. And in marriage, you have one person with two people. And Christ as the head and we as the body, the church, make up one. And that goes back to the John 17 passage. I'm gonna reread after I get done with this I hope I haven't lost anybody you're probably thinking this math is all screwed up to me and how can it be so deluded like this you know because in our mind we're thinking no 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 we we got to get this straight it's one and one is you know it's two we we, we got to get it's not we're one this does something actually very important for us that belong to the church It takes on a new importance for the understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ. Those that are not of the body of Christ, they don't share in that union and communion. That is most unbelievable as to our privilege of being part of the church. And I think it was last week, if it wasn't, it was on a Wednesday night study. I had had to show or bring back Uh, To the folks, what the true definition of the church is, and that's found in Ephesians chapter 2. We won't go there right now. But I do want to proceed, and what I'm doing is I'm stretching that cord that I started in Genesis. Actually, it was in Jeremiah, but then I had to go back. I had grabbed that cord, that that thread, and bring it all the way through, and we, we found it in the cross. We found what was going on there concerning marriage. Now we're going to take it, that band and go all the way to the end of the book in Revelation. Because what we have been seeing is the development of the end product of what God started to begin with. In Israel, it was said that God was engaged to or betrothed to. I read it from Hosea. He, uh, the people of Israel were engaged to God. Okay. Now, just a point of clarification, uh, because we live in a totally different culture right now. Uh, The betrothal was, except for the Marriage Act, everything but. Uh, You're committed. You're promised. You're reserved. Um, You are all but married. You're not living together, but you were spoken for. That's in the Middle Eastern, the Eastern culture. That's their idea. Everybody in the Old Testament, they would have have known perfectly well what engagement is, okay? Well, we've been in a state of the church itself, in a state of engagement with the bridegroom, okay? And to show you that this theme, this thread, runs all the way through scripture and it's speaking of something that is absolutely most intimate. We read in chapter 19 of Revelation, then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, and as church, a beautiful church, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of my, uh, mighty pearl, peals of thunder crying, hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the mighty Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. Now, get this for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And I'm going to go back to Revelation, but I just need to make a few comments about that. And that is, you know, from Paul's writing in Corinthians, he says, the glory of a woman is man. Now, now the hackles is going straight up in the air on a lot of women. The glory of a woman is man. The glory of the church is Christ. Now, if the church is not being the church, what happens? It detracts from Jesus Christ. The glory of Christ is his father. That's how we are found in relationship to one another. The glory of the wife. Now, if the husband is a super conehead, that's going to be bad news bears. And it's the same thing as if you are not actually being a shepherd to your wife, how is the wife ever going to respect you? You see, we men are supposed to love our wives. The wives are supposed to respect us. In the church, if we are absolutely warping The message of the gospel, how in the world is that going to reflect back on Christ? You won't even be able to see him. You won't see Christ if the church is not actually doing what they're supposed to be doing in the church. And that's why I want to do something by way of caution. And this, by the way, is wrapping up the the message that I have this morning. But it can be somewhat long here. Because there are, two, there are two warnings that I want to give you in relation to intimacy, to marriage, both from a physical standpoint, but also from a spiritual standpoint. The first one I want to deliver to you is the spiritual warning, and that's found in Revelation chapter 2, and it's from the church in Ephesus. And the church in Ephesus had, had a lot of things going for it, but it did, did have something that was not going for it. And I'm not going to go into this because I'm not preaching from Revelation right now, but I want to just grab this one section in this chapter and I'm going to read it for you. And I'm going to show you that this is a warning, not just to the church at Ephesus, but church, the churches, our church. I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Now, I'm not going to expand this altogether, but I want to make an observation. It has, I have to use the physical section of this you know, to kind of clarify what I'm speaking about here. Uh, You've got to tune in your memories for a second, Okay. And that is, you know, for sure and for certain, when you first met your wife to be, the one you're going to be betrothed to. If you can remember back way back in those days, you guys probably don't remember that because it's a long way. But you, you see, oh, oh, truly, you you see what I'm saying? I mean, you got to remember back. Isn't it true? Now I'm going to speak just for husbands because. To be honest, I'm not sure what goes on in women's minds. But I know from a man's standpoint, what I do remember of that is it was almost like magic. I mean, you, you stare at your wife, the way she smiles, the, 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 her eyes. Uh, I, even, I even stared at my, the hairs on the back of my wife's neck. I, I thought everything there, the way her neck was, etc. You see how that goes? It was so captivating. Guess what? You remember that those days are very special, okay? Because all the trash that's outside of you, it loses its effect when you're in that state. Now we do we do lose that. It progresses, and I'm here to witness to you. It progresses into something that's absolutely beautiful. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And I wouldn't want to stay back at that first stage because that other thing that's developed is unbelievably beautiful. But what is happening here is that it's not so much that the church has forgotten her love, but they forgot God's love for them. You see what I mean? That's incredible. They're stepping back and saying, I don't think God loves us. I, it's gone. Because once again, using our memory a little bit, do you remember when Christ met you? It blew me away. Okay? And what I was seeing was a love that I couldn't describe from God to me. I'm not talking about my love to god because let's face it folks there is an axiom that is absolutely true whatever is of god can return to god whatever is not of god cannot return to god so if he didn't if he if he didn't bring it to being we're not going to be reciprocating so God gave me that love. He showed me that love, and I returned that love. To the Ephesians, they had totally forgotten it. What they replaced it was with was doctrine, doctrinaire. They were great about defending those ideas of the Nicolaitans, but as far as experiential relationship that has to do with intimacy between themselves and God, that was non-existent. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because the sentence to the church in Ephesus was this. Okay, if you don't repent and do the works you did at first, in other words, that relationship that we entered into, guess what he's going to do? I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Now, once again, temptation for a little landmine here. It doesn't mean they're losing their salvation. What does it mean? It means that actually their witness to the world has been removed. Their witness has been removed. It's null and void. It's as though, I don't care how much they speak, it doesn't mean anything. And isn't it true, experientially, I've witnessed this, a pastor that does not have that relationship to God that is most intimate, it's just words. It's just words. It has to be born of the Spirit in order to have any effect on the congregation whatsoever. Well, the church is the same way. Now I'm going to get a little bit closer to you, and this is at that juncture where uh, I think there's probably a temptation for some in a congregation. I think our congregation is pretty safe, but I think in uh, in a lot of congregations, people would have to tuck in their their feet a little bit. Okay. Marriage is actually a sign and a symbol of something that's going to be that's that's actually going on spiritually. We see it physically, and it's pointing to something that's most magnificent spiritually. Between God and His church through Jesus Christ. Okay? That, re- that physical sign, that representation, bring it close in. Grab it, bring it into your marriage. Because just like the Old Testament testifies of those things that are going to come about in a vague sense of way, we look at them, we see them, and so that we can identify with things that have happened in Jesus Christ through those things that have already been demonstrated. Well, marriage is the same way. It still is the same way. We are actually walking billboards for the church in our marriage. That's how important marriage is. Now, in the 20th century, marriage is just, it's just caved in on itself. It's like, who cares about marriage? Okay? The concept is just so, so warped and distorted. It's just, it's pathetic. <clears throat> it's a tragedy, but you know, on my mind's eye, I kind of look, look at it like this because we now are witnesses. And you know that all too often I've heard this. How can we be effective witnesses of the gospel to those people that are outside in the dark? How can we be effective witnesses? And nine times out of 10, they don't start with marriage. They don't start at the home. No, they're looking outside the door. I got to go grab the whatever it is. You know, the person that's. They, they're the one to will go outside. But they, don't, they fail to understand that right there on their plate, God is making them a sign of Christ in the church to be shared with those on the outside. That sharing actually goes through their children, too. Okay, they are a witness to that which is supposed to be holy, in union. And as I thought to that, thought about that myself, I envision it like this. And forgive this picture, I want you, because there's some problems with it. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right ahead. There's some problems with it, but I want you to get the main point. Since some of you are thinking of going to Wyoming, I'm going to use Wyoming as an excuse. Now just envision with me for a second if you were stuck in a terrible blizzard in Wyoming where it's 50 below zero and and we're talking cold and you're stranded and you're trying to get to someplace safe and you see off in the distance the cabin and it's got the lights pouring out the window and smoke coming off the the stack. You're so excited and you run over there and you, you gaze through the window pane and what you see is a husband and a wife and a couple of kids in front of the fireplace singing, and they perhaps you've got some donuts and hot chocolate on the bench there right in front of you. That's pretty inviting. You're ice cold, you want to go inside, you want to be participants in that. That's, a, that's very inviting. And some marriages look like that. You know that? Some marriages really do look like that. I'm sad to say not very Many. Not very many, and even in the church. This is what I see in the church. You're ice cold, and you go to that window pane. It's snowing. There's no fireplace. The wife is beating her husband over the head with a frying pan. And the husband is yelling at the top of his lungs, and the kids are scattering to the four winds. And there's no donuts or hot hot chocolate. That is not inviting at all. Now, I wanted to give you that picture because you guys need to do that review of your own marriages and then ask yourself, are you a credible witness to Christ and the church in his wedding? Sorry if I stepped on some toes, but you know that's the reality of how God works in our lives. He asks each one of us to be a signpost for him, for those that are outside, shivering in the cold. Now, like I said before, there's some problems with that analogy. Uh, works righteousness and we do it. And, say, but, and so just erase that. I want you to get the, the, uh, the main point here. Now, I'm going to go back to John 17. Uh, John 17. Because I want to capitalize on this. Because you know, you know something? Something happened that is incredible in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Unbelievably incredible. It actually just boggles the mind when you, you consider the union that we are actually going to be walking into in the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of those that belong to Jesus Christ, that are the body of Jesus Christ. And once again, I want to read this. He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, that's that marriage supper of the Lamb, to know Jesus. Now, one of the other tripwires in the the Christian jargon or their definition of things, Kid has mentioned it many times. And I hope that, like me, you kind of hiccuped when he says this. Because eternal life is not unending days. That's not what it refers to. Okay. But you know what it refers to is a union with Jesus Christ that allows us, the church, to actually enter into the closest reunion that examines all of the corners of the love of Jesus Christ all of the corners, to the fullest, to the highest, to the deepest. Paul's words in Ephesians go like this, the height, the width, the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. In other words, the totality of Jesus. Now herein lies the weight of that term eternal life. It's not unending days, but if you fully flesh it out and understand what that means, to fully understand the love, height, the width of Jesus Christ, will that ever stop? Well, if, if Jesus Christ, if God was finite like us, yes, it would. Yes, it would. And then we'd have problems and doubts. So what, what is he going to do with us when we get done? When we, when we finish up our discovery of God, what is he going to do with us? but because God is infinite and we will never reach the end. I think that pretty much means we keep on going. And that's a better definition, a better way of viewing eternal life in context with God. Well, now you know what intimacy looks like and because God is infinite, Think of ever exhausting the, the pursuit of the discovery, the intimate discovery of God by the Spirit, through the Son, grasping the Father. I don't think Christians will ever, ever cease to exist. Now we actually have um, journeyed over that whole field that I gave you, the minefield. I hope nobody, nobody got their legs blown off. I hope they've stayed focused on that word intimacy. I hope then when I go back to you and read delight in the Lord, we start to get a fuller understanding of you know that touchstone of delighting in the Lord. It's a rela- relationship that transcends anything and everything that we of understood, because now it's transformed into not physical alone, but spiritual. A spiritual union. Well, if you're paying attention to the the overall message that I gave to you, underneath all of this, there's three things that underpin this message. Faith, love, and hope. Faith is that thing that sees, th- sees us through to the consummation. We're engaged to Christ, and our faith says, and it's a faith that has something so gloriously put in front of us through the Word of God that it it stirs us to yearn for that. But our love is that that which grows through intimate acquaintance with God even now before the the final act of the consummating of the marriage our love is actually driven by the word of Jesus Christ in our hearts and hope is in certainty of the completion of the plan not as I hope that it doesn't rain tomorrow and we have no idea we hope as in certainty it's going to be done I hope this has been helpful for you in as much as sharpened your understanding of our union with God. We don't want a cheap understanding of what it is to be united to God. Nor, and I know you guys wouldn't ever want this, we don't want God to just pat us on the head. And we don't, we don't want a casual acquaintance with God we want that acquaintance with god that it just it's, it just grabs and pulls inside it, it is so sweet it's incredible that's what we yearn for and by pointing that out what i have done hopefully what i've done is given you a little bit of break from the war that rages outside because with this, then, what we're holding is something so magnificent, so much to live into, so much to hope for, that we can say to the outside world, do your best, because you're not, you're not, you're not getting me. I'm married to Jesus. Let's pray. Blessed Father, thank you for this hour of worship. We pray, God, that the hearts of your people that have gathered together today will have been rejoicing. Because when I prepared this message, I had to sit back and say, praise God. What a beautiful plan. And it's even more earth-shaking to me that you included me, that you said, Steve, come. You come here. I want you to be part of this grand plan. What a beautiful thing. God, give your people courage and uh, light in a dark place and give us, Lord, that uh, energy to look at our marriages afresh so that which we represent in the world will be mirroring your relationship to us in the church. And as a church, I pray, God, that we will actually be the glory of you. It will be that which you have called us to be. Lights in a dark place. Priests and kings. Kings. Give us grace, Lord, and give us forgiveness for those times where we truly misrepresent you, not only in our homes, but in our church. In Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.